Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me from arguably, I'd say probably the worst, uh, the most random uh, location that anyone's ever recorded the PDO Cast. Um, it's my good buddy Murat Atesh. Murat, what's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? You uh, do you want to tell the listeners you're recording from the from the side of the road on a highway? So uh, if the audio quality is off or or if something random happens, uh, that'll explain <laughs> it. But it should be pretty good, and I'm I'm excited. I mean, we're taking this very seriously. I know you, you're uh, you're doing some heavy lifting right now for for your writing, and you're kind of taking some time out of your day to to chat with me. So I'm excited we're going to do this. Hey, I'm I'm excited as well. I'm also proud of Family Manitoba. I, I pulled off the number one just east of Brandon, and uh, I've got some safe space on a on a farmer's field. They gave me a nod. Life is good. Um, no, I think I was telling you right before we came on. I, I did have to drive by some of the the places of my childhood sports misery, and uh, the last place I ever played provincial soccer for my home team of Pinawa, uh, McGregor defeated us. And if anyone on uh, your listenership of the PDO cast is from McGregor, uh, I am just finally forgiving you now, and it's been like 15 years. So uh, I just had to say that um, I'm very excited to be doing this in rural Manitoba. It just feels good. To- Oh, uh, the PDO cast is a huge following in McGregor, Manitoba. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, Toronto, New York City, Stockholm, and then McGregor, Manitoba <laughs> is like fourth on that list. Ah, uh, beautiful. This is what I like to hear. Good. You know what? I, uh, I'm glad we're chatting. We haven't really had a chance to talk. We traded Twitter DMs back and forth, but the last time I saw you was, uh, following day one of the NHL draft, which was in Vancouver last summer. And it's been a while now, but, uh, you know, just to kind of give the listeners a peek behind the curtain, we got to hang out after that crazy day, and we sh- I think uh, yeah, we, we sh- intimately shared a uh, a brisket sandwich and some fried chicken, and, and had some beers after the uh, after round one of the draft, and that was a blast. So it's uh, it's always good to chat with you, man. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember exactly the spot, but I remember the brisket, and I remember just being so tired and needing like the best possible brisket that I'd could possibly have in that moment alongside that beer and it hit the spot. That was a good, that was definitely a good time. Well, it, it was, it was a hectic day. I haven't done too many drafts like that. And it's just like, I think it's like four or five hours, but it really, the entire time you, you know, your eyes are wide open. You're just like meeting so many people and shaking hands and, and networking. And there's a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces. And then we kind of got to relax a little bit. And I forget whether like one of us wanted the brisket, one of us wanted the fried chicken. And we ultimately decided to order both and then just split it. So we could each try both of them. And I remember the brisket was just far and away better than the fried chicken. So whoever wanted that one more than the, than the fried chicken, chicken was uh was the one in my book <laughs> no doubt i like how you're sharing how sweet we were as well uh yeah i think uh who was it, it was patrick teasing us for that as well uh, patrick johnson um uh but yeah yeah it was a good time oh gosh what sweet memories vancouver i know yeah it was a blast well let's let's uh let's get right into it then since you're a busy man and and uh who knows how long you'll be able to be pulled out on that on that highway uh we're gonna talk about the jets and i'm really excited to do this because they've been a team that 
I've been following very closely. Um, one of, I don't even know if it's necessarily a bold call at this point because it felt like people had soured on them so much and we're so aware of all the red flags. But when in the preseason, when we're all making our picks and then we're being asked, like, what's your bold call for this season? What are you, what are you expecting? What's kind of going to be a bit of a, z- a zag when other people are zigging? And, and, and for me, it was, I just was really down on this Jets team. I um, I think most kind of casual fans that had maybe unplugged for the summer, uh, just based on the fact that they've made the postseason the past couple of years, they have a lot of young, exciting, big name players. I think people were typically penciling them in there somewhere, maybe not, if not a top three central seed, then definitely a wild card spot. And, and sort of my take was that all the talent they lost, all the defensive question marks they had was going to be ultimately too much to overcome. And you don't want to make any sort of bold, you know, any, any sort of um, close and shut proclamations after just 10 games or whatever that they've played so far. And, and there's a lot of early season confirmation bias where you kind of see what you want to see or what you're expecting. But um, I have to say, I have not been particularly impressed. I went back and, and rewatched pretty much all their games so far this season uh, in preparation for the show. And there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts, not a lot of great stuff. I don't know what, what's been uh, kind of the vibe around there early on in the season. And also what's been your takeaway watching this team play? Yeah, I think heading into the season, uh, close watchers of the Jets would, would have expected a step back, and that's only reasonable. Um, Jacob Truba for Neil Pionk is, uh, is a downgrade in terms of quality on the ice, uh, losing uh, Ben Chirot, Tyler Myers. Uh, okay, there's some impact there depending on what comes up and, and, and replaces them as well. Uh, Nathan Beaulieu, uh, sort of a maybe a number five or six guy, but he's hurt and uh, not able to play. Sami Niku, who was uh, finally due to, to claim a full-time NHL spot. Well, he hurt his hamstring. He's uh, been with the Moose, but not playing, so he's not quite getting the conditioning stint you'd imagine. Um, Tucker Pullman, who has been due to claim a, a five or six spot, or maybe even higher up, depending on his partner quality for a couple of years now, but has injury troubles. Well, he's out of the lineup all of a sudden as well, and now you got a lineup that's featuring Dmitry Kulikov in a premier role, uh, Anthony Boteto in a premier role, Carl Dahlstrom in a premier role. There, there are players playing for the Jets in key minutes uh, that are not just, you know, one rung above their typical uh, or idealized spot, especially on defense, uh, but sometimes multiple rungs. Sometimes they were AHL guys last season. Sometimes they were press box uh, guys last season. So you've removed Jacob Truba from Josh Morrissey's pairing and Dustin Bufflin from the second pairing. It's basically two top pairing guys that you've dropped. Right. And that has a major impact. Um, and then up front, uh, Blake Wheeler struggled a little bit out of the gate. And, and every time he ever struggles, we're going to have to go down the, is this one father time is catching him sort of conversation. I don't think we're quite there yet with him, but, uh, but that's going to be something to keep an eye on at the same time. Um, Dimitri, I apologize for the monologue, but one of the things that if we can say that the casual fan uh, maybe has missed the step back. I, I think that the obsessed fan um, who has predicted the step back because they saw the, the second half of last season, they saw the roster changes, they might be missing some of the progressive changes being made in the neutral zone, uh, which is the Jets really, maybe I'm going to say coaching for how desperate their roster situation is. Um, it's been a lot better a lot more aggressive at Winnipeg's blue line. The gap has been tighter. Forwards have been coming back harder. And even a guy like Neil Pionk, who struggled so poorly at zone entry defense uh, with the New York Rangers, well, systemically here in Winnipeg, he's actually been uh, the most aggressive and most successful uh, defenseman at shutting down entries at the line. So there are good tidbits tucked in there. We can get into all this sort of stuff as we go on uh, that are maybe lost because the step back is real too. Does, it, does that make sense? No, it does. And I think that was a key point you made there where this isn't like a, a 10 game sample per se, where you're like, Oh, well we don't want to overreact. Like even when this team was uh, relatively a full strength, they had Buffalo and Morrissey injuries last year, even when all those players were still on the team. But I believe from like my, the stat I keep coming back to is from January 1st on, which is, which is clearly a, a random sort of arbitrary cutoff, but just it's clean. Cause it's like basically 2019 onwards. Uh, they were 25th in shot attempt share. They were 29th in shot on goal share. And they were like a very trendy team to get upset in round one. Now, you know, they lost to the eventual Stanley Cup champions. So you don't want to dock them too much for that. It's a, it's a very understandable defeat, but it felt like there was kind of like a, 
uh, an air of stink around this team sort of there was a lot of rumors there was a lot of questions about why the performance was dragging so much and then they couldn't have had a worse summer and, and you know part of it was not Kevin Chevaldeoff's uh, fault by any means because you look at the contracts that guys like Kevin Hayes got from Philly Brandon Tana from Pittsburgh sort of how everyone in the round of the league knew that Jacob Truba was was gone and they lost a lot of their leverage and so they could only get back so much and if anything they did a pretty good job of getting back that first round pick which allowed them to identify Vili Hainola and we can talk more about him but he's been a bit one of those silver linings that you mentioned so you know, a lot of these guys were going to leave regardless, and I'm not suggesting that the the Jets should have paid the price that it would have taken to to retain them. But you remove all those guys from a team that was already taking that step back, and in preparation for the show, I was just kind of like looking at some of the underlying numbers, trying to figure out what's happening. And and this isn't a, a sentence that I thought I'd say, but if anything, like they're five and six right now, they have a minus six or seven goal differential. It feels like. If Connor Hellebuck wasn't taking this step up and kind of regaining his form after a, a pretty down season last year, um, things could be even worse than they are right now, all things considered. Do you think that's fair? I think so. Uh, and I wouldn't... How do I say this? I absolutely think that the the point to Connor Hellebuck is... is, is completely on point uh, he had a he had a poor first game and believe me uh the the radio shows the twitter ads all that sort of stuff i mean folks were ready to declare the contract a failure and 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 ship them out it was it was pretty harsh especially because i mean goalies being what they are and sorry to play into the stereotype but uh his disposition uh, following losses historically has been to stay in a positive frame of mind. Um, so he's not going to dive into mistakes that he made. He's going to say he feels like he's played pretty well. Uh, anything that he does need to work on, I think he's going to do on his own time. But there are some pretty bold proclamations after uh, after giving up five goals and and poor ones against the New York Rangers to start the season um, where he genuinely looked clumsy. Well, he, he had a post-game conference in which he said he actually felt pretty good about his game. And that turned some folks off in, in the city for a little while. Uh, the fact is, I, I think he's a good bet to be an above average or at least an average NHL starter in the NHL, and he's been quite excellent since that time, and I think that uh, Winnipeg is going to absolutely need that because as as good as they could become relative to my expectations at protecting their own blue line, at some point you have to play defense in your own zone, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a perfectly offensive defensive team that I mean, didn't make even make sense coming out of my mouth, right? You have to play the end zone stuff. And even the guys who are taking big steps forward, like a Neil Pionk at his own blue line. Well, he's still losing battles in his own zone from time to time. There's going to be long shifts in his own end. And Josh Morrissey hasn't, um, well, he's showing perhaps maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's the pressure of the alternate captaincy. Maybe it's the pressure of the contract extension. Maybe it's just the, coincidentally slow start that we're going to zoom way too far in on because it's been 11 games, but he hasn't been dominant. And without a Jacob Trudeau quality partner on his side, uh, that's been exposed. And Billy um, Hainala, another just, what a, what a great pick that Winnipeg made in the draft. And yep. I think that he's got a, a great future. Such a such an intelligent player. There's some rhythmic things that he does where he throws veterans off with simple timing. He'll wait an extra I'm, fraction of a second before a pass, find a lane, hit the tape, or uh, make a play before, a beat before somebody's ready for it. And these little subtle things that make very good players look kind of clumsy sometimes, he's still a small guy, and he's still scrapping for it in his own zone as well. At 18 years old, of course he's going to in the, in the NHL. So there are going to be long nights in Winnipeg zone zone, even if everything goes well for this team. And I think that's a reality for the Winnipeg Jets, no matter how well their forwards come back and play, no matter how what step forward Nick Ehlers takes, and he's taken one, or Patrick Laine takes as well. Um, there's going to be these painful nights, and I, I think that that's where that, that bubble or worse thought comes in, especially without Bufflin. It might be a bubble team with Bufflin, but that's it. Yeah, well, we're going to talk more about the forwards. I have plenty of stuff I wanted to get into on that. But before we do move <laughs> off, off of Hellebuck, you know, it is, I do think it is a point where the hammering home, listen, 
we can never, I, I think our evaluation of goalies is all over the place and still has a lot of room to be refined. And, and people can get way overreactionary when a goalie's on a hot stretch. They proclaim him the next best goalie in the world. And then when he has three bad games and gets pulled a couple of times, people panic and start pointing to the backup goalie. And for Hellebuck, I mean, I do think his bounce back, both for um, the purposes of keeping this team afloat for now until they do get some more long-term defensive solutions, but also just for himself in terms of his career and his trajectory can't be sort of understated or overstated just because listen last year it really felt like everything was kind of going against him from you know not living up to year one of a mega six-year contract extension to Laurent Brossois coming in and and playing above his head and outplaying him at times and people clamoring for him to get more starts uh the team around him started loosening up a bit when we think back to that 2017-18 magical season of his when he finishes a Vezina finalist part of the reason for that beyond him playing better was also how Paul Maurice and his system had done such a better job of locking stuff up around him and really making life easier for him and and so for him to bounce back like this, especially after that first game where I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, here we go again. Uh, he's been terrific. He has a 929 save percentage this season. He's fourth in the league in goals saved above average. He's given them a chance to win pretty much every night. I mean, he has a 920 save percentage or higher in six of the eight games, including that uh, you know first bad showing against the Rangers. And so um, you know, moving forward, I guess... We don't want to be too negative. We don't want to start off the show by just being like, oh, my God, everything's a mess. This is a disaster uh, because that doesn't make for, <laughs> for a good, entertaining content. So I'm, I'm just trying to, like, point to the fact that this is uh, a positive development or a positive revelation for them to kind of build on or, or, or hold out on hope that, you know, if this is going to continue and he is going to keep living up to his contract and living up to the flashes he showed two years ago, then that's clearly, um, you know, a massive step in the direction for them, regardless of what's happening in front of them. Yeah, and that's key for the Winnipeg Jets. I think he was also a little bit of a victim of a bad first half last season at the same time that Brissois was just playing incredible. And if you look at the full season, if you look at the second half in particular, um, Hellebuck's game starts to turn around and improve if you're just going save percentage-wise and things like that. Um, but because that contrast was so strong early on when things were a little bit chaotic, uh, I think found memories would be a little bit longer. Uh, like like you said, I, I think that it's a, a great sign for the Jets. And I, I continue to believe that, you know, a good goaltender who is above average as a starter over the course of those six years could have a below average one or two years. And with goaltending being what it is, that that strikes me as reasonable. Yep. No, oh, perfect. I mean, 100%. But, you know, in terms of this blue line and sort of as we spin it forward and, and you know, talk about adjustments and potential things Paul Maurice can do and, and how this the system can kind of compensate a little bit for the clear depleted talent that is on that blue line. You know, you look at last year, um, in terms of their, even if you stretch it out to their top eight because they acquired Nathan Boyu at a certain point and were playing him and there was kind of guys coming in and out of the lineup with injuries, uh, they've only really had access to two of their top eight most heavily used defensemen last season. And those are Jacob True. Uh, sorry, those are Josh Morrissey and Dmitry Kulikov. And there was a one game, I believe, there during that Eastern road trip to start the season when both those guys were out as well. And they were basically playing uh, six defensemen that really had no experience for this team last season. And I think Sammy Niku was like their most uh, tenured guy, which was just a remarkable thing to say. So on the one hand, um, when you consider all of that, like it could be worse, but there is that, as you alluded to earlier, that kind of trickle down effect or snowball effect of every guy's being asked to do a little bit too much and it really stretches them thin. And I think, especially in Josh Morrissey's case, he's a player who I've really liked in the past and thought highly of. And he was in a perfect spot last year where him and Jacob Truba could kind of play those reliable top defensive minutes and then not have to do much heavy lifting offensively or, or, or beyond that. And now if you look around him, you know, his minutes have gone up yet again, pretty substantially. He's being asked to do so much. And so I think it's pretty clear that that's kind of the driving force behind his struggles beyond all this other stuff. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that a bit where it's like, I think, you know, we look at these numbers, we look at them on a permanent basis and we kind of uh, lose sight of the fact that there is a human element and you can't just like project that a guy can keep playing more and more and more without having uh, a drop in efficiency. And I think that's what we are seeing with, with Morrissey. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he's, he's certainly a human being and he's sort of spoken as well in recent times to 
to admitting that that he's fighting it a little bit, and uh, I, I think that's reasonable. If you looked at the ideal circumstance for the Winnipeg Jets, um, I mean, he's lost a top pairing partner with whom he had chemistry too. Their communication, the reads they made, uh, Winnipeg's defensive system involves a lot of man-to-man and a lot of zone, um, and switching between those two things as well. Uh, he and Jacob Truba were even last season leagues. Uh, better than any of Winnipeg's other defense pairings in terms of just managing their switch-offs and communicating that sort of stuff. Um, so even if he got an excellent new partner this season, it would have been a new partner. And so now he's played with Dahlstrom, he's played with Kulikov, he's played with a, a, a pile of different partners as he's also being asked to do more and do more of the heavy lifting. And in an ideal circumstance, you'd have Dustin Bufflin anchoring a, another one that can do sort of similar situations or play in similar situations as that. Uh, Anil Pionk wouldn't be counted upon to be on a, at a top pairing equivalent or, or be the leader or the go-to guy, uh, but instead he'd be supported by somebody like uh, like Morris here, Bufflin. And then Avila Hainala, who we should spend some time on if, uh, mm-hmm. um, where I guess we already have a little bit, but in a perfect situation, uh, he could be protected by a, a Dustin Bufflin sort of uh, partner, especially because Hano has had some pretty good success in the neutral zone, stepping up at the at the blue line. He he makes his defensive reads very quickly, very efficiently. He forces the dump puck, which is all Winnipeg's really trying to do in that sort of situation. He forces the dump puck pretty uh, effectively, and well, he had he a Dustin Bufflin to help him clean up that uh, that zone instead of. Uh, name the, uh, the other possibility, I think things would be even smoother and it would be a really good argument, I think, to keep him with the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, instead, I think that, to me, the best argument is to uh, pat the amateur scouts on the back, high-five everybody, um, thank Vila Hanala for his time and, and send him to the AHL or even probably the AHL or even Liga, which are both options where he can excel in a little bit more... Uh, stable of a situation with less chaos and less likelihood of being exposed so constantly. This is uh, this is why you're uh, you're a professional referring to this as a uh, an unstable situation is uh, is putting it kindly. But I mean, here's the question, I guess, then for Paul Maurice and for the Jets because I had them really high at the start of the season on my watchability rankings because I figured that they would just go at this acknowledging um, how paper thin their blue line was and how many issues they'd have in their own zone by going like, you know what, screw it. We're just going to try to outscore all of our issues and open things up and embrace that chaos and um, hope that our talent can win us games on occasion, similar to what like the Blackhawks did, for example, last year, or even the blue or, or even the Leafs have done at times with, with how their roster is constructed. But Early on in the year, I think we saw that a little bit, especially out east in a couple of those games against the Devils and the Rangers, and they were just incredibly fun to watch. And then as the year has gotten go- going here, um, and I think that's what you're alluding to a little bit with those neutral zone adjustments you were talking about and stuff like that. But I have noticed this team, it feels like part of it is, I guess, by necessity that they feel like they can't get away playing like that. So they're really uh, slowing it down, trying to be more methodical about their approach and really tightening it up to kind of cover for the actual talent itself and that's been it's just like a an interesting sort of philosophical thought exercise for me because you look at some of the forward talent on this team and you think man like they would really thrive in an up-tempo, fast-paced, back-and-forth shootout. But then, clearly, they are so uh, hesitant to place that type of stress on their depleted defense that instead they're reining it all back in. And I wonder if it's having uh, a potentially even adverse effect, which would explain some of the uncharacteristically poor numbers for a lot of those forwards who should be uh, playing better than their numbers would indicate. Well, it's interesting. I've seen the same sort of drop off the pace, I guess, if you want to think that the Jets have started the season as a fairly high event team and sort of faded off of that. Um, I, I definitely see that as well. And just philosophically, if you've got the finishing talent that they do, uh, you might think that rolling the dice on playing aggressively both ways would be to the Jets' advantage. And certainly in, in recent seasons, I think some of the criticism that Paul Maurice's coaching staff has taken has been because that pace has been pulled back, even when the offense and defense was, was really probably quite capable of handling it. 
One of the things that has happened this season that I wonder about in terms of how it relates to this is that uh, Andrew Kopp started the season as Winnipeg's second-line center between Kyle Connor and Patrick Liney. Nick Ehlers was on the top line with Mark Scheifele and Blake Wheeler. It was a relatively new look for the Winnipeg Jets' top six. And one of the things that happened in those games, um, even though it was sort of firewagon hockey a little bit, was you saw plays where... Patrick Laine was back-checking, stick-lifting, checking players who were trying to make breakouts, turning pucks over and sending them the other way. And seemed to have developed a bit of a chemistry with Andrew Kopp as well. Their huge comeback against the New Jersey Devils was led by that second line. I would say led by Kopp in terms of creating some entries, uh, chipping and chasing around players, laying the body on, on people. And then Patrick Laine was right there, um, the amount of plays where it was his physicality and his winning of a battle that set up a goal in that comeback was really quite special. And I saw it as a pretty good sign for this guy who's going to be, who's going to look to just increase marginally his ability to drive play. And that, that was exactly what you wanted to see from the guy, but he was playing so well that he got promoted and he started to play with Mark Scheifele and Blake Wheeler. And that's a slower paced line for sure in terms of how it thinks the game. There's a lot of great passes made. There's a little bit of perimeter play, but there's not that crash bang and then come back uh, hard so the defenders can gap up sort of uh, mentality to it. And that's one of the things that I would like to see a little bit more of, actually, the, the cop line pairing as time goes by. Brian Little's healthy now. That's a new thing as well. Uh, and, and that might make it a, a pretty unlikely event. And it's a philosophical issue that has reared its head before. It's, and that's referencing your, your slowing of the pace. Right. Uh, it seemed like there was a solution there for a moment, but then roster situations and, and sort of shuffling of the line seems to have pulled the Jets off of that as well. Um, so I'm really just thinking out loud on the idea. I don't feel like I have any conclusions, but I thought that there was something special and that the, the promotion uh, to the first line might have actually been a disservice to Liney early in the season. Well, that's a great point. Um, Rat, let's take a quick break here from a, here from a sponsor, and then um, I want to pick that more up because uh, the whole Liney thing is really fascinating to me. Pow, pow. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDOcast is SeatGeek. Pretty much the only thing that's annoying about going out to an event is actually getting the tickets themselves. Unless someone's giving them to you and you really have to fend for yourself, um, it's annoying knowing where to look, uh, whether you're getting scammed, whether you're getting a good deal, or you're getting ripped off. Um, it's just a whole hassle. Like I, I know that in the past when I've done it, you wind up with a million different tabs open. You're trying to compare prices and available seats from different websites and it just becomes a whole ordeal and it doesn't need to be because there is a one-stop shop to do that that'll save you time money and effort and that's what SeatGeek prides itself on and i'm going to tell you why you should give them a shot for all your ticketing needs SeatGeek really uh, does all the work for you they search the web they pull all those available tickets for any given event into one place and then they grade all of those seats based on value and display them on an interactive seat map so you can visually see what are good deals. You just look for the green dots, and the red dots are ones you want to stay away from because you're getting overcharged. And every purchase of SeatGeek is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. I've got that SeatGeek app on my phone, and I've found time and time again that it's by far the easiest way to find tickets. Whether it's for a hockey game, whether it's a basketball game now with the NBA season having started, whether you're splurging and you're going to go watch a World Series game, whether you're going to go watch an NFL game, whether you're going to see a concert or a stand-up comic, there's so many different things going on at one time and SeatGeek's going to have access to all of them. So I highly recommend just going, checking it out, seeing what's playing in your town on a given night and just uh, getting out there and having a fun night out. And as if that wasn't enough, SeatGeek is going to spruce it up a little bit for you and sweeten the pot by giving you $10 off your first purchase with them just for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. All you need to do to get in on the fun is use our promo code and let them know we sent you. So download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Now let's get back to the show. All right. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, with Line A, um, I think Paul Maurice is in a in a bit of a tricky spot here. It feels like um you know he's clearly trying to 
pull the right strings or push the right buttons and kind of have his cake and eat it too from the perspective of, um, you know, I think that he would like to get line A going offensively because despite some of the improvements we've seen that you were mentioning off the puck, away from the puck in terms of, um, you know, how strong he's been on it, how active he's been, how noticeable he's been in different areas of the game. At the end of the day, for him to be most valuable to this team and uh, justify, you know, not only what they're paying him on this bridge deal, which is a suppressed cost, but also what they would potentially pay him down the road, he needs to score goals at that kind of superhuman level we saw in the first two years. And so I think from Maurice's perspective, you know, he was thinking it would make the most sense to get him up with the two guys who should be uh, my two big playmakers in Shifley and Wheeler and, you know, try to get the puck to line in places where he can score and really get him going offensively. But what wound up happening there instead from what I noticed was, you know, Wheeler and Shifley at this point... um, have really struggled at five on five when Ehlers hasn't been around with them to do a lot of the uh, sort of dirty work and puck retrieval and moving the puck up the ice and transitioning it for them. And so what he wound up doing inadvertently a little bit is when you move Ehlers away from them to try to get line A going, instead, not only does it not work for line A, but it also kind of decreases the effectiveness of Wheeler and Shifley. And so it really felt like there was kind of a cascading effect there where I, I'm sure he was, yeah, that, the rationale makes sense and he was trying to accomplish a certain thing, but instead it felt like it totally backfired and really just uh, submarined not only what line A had going for him, but also what Wheeler and Shifley had going with Ehlers as well. Yeah, I think that that's a solid theory for sure. I don't want to overstate how far Line has come off the off the pace as well. Uh, there's a there's just a brilliant goal. I believe it was against Arizona, but it starts with Line kind of high up in the neutral zone. He's a clear option for for Mark Shifley, who's breaking the puck out. Uh, Shifley looks him off and appears to basically just ignore him the entire way up the ice. Line pulls up his speed and stays on side. Uh, Shifley curls as if to go outside towards the the right wing wall and then fires a pass. Across Cross his body to line A's wheelhouse, he one times at home. And I think the entire building was fooled by that play. Line A said that Shifley didn't look at him once the entire way up the ice. And it was, for me, a symbol of these two players developing a chemistry and almost an unpredictability that's missing when, uh, when it's just Wheeler and, and Shifley running the show. One of the reasons why I think that Wheeler and Shifley have sort of fallen off their dominance is maybe a, a hint of predictability. And in addition to speed and zone entries and all that other stuff that Nick Ehlers brings to the table, um, he also, like, let's face it, he's a bit chaotic. He, he, mm-hmm. he goes so fast. He sees reads that other people don't. He'll curl around the back of the net. He'll change the angle. There are things that he does because he plays the game as fast as he does that are, I think, less predictable for defenses. And there are times... Um, especially I would say second half of last season where the, where the struggling was really quite pronounced. It seemed to me that you could count on Shifley and Wheeler for one cutback, a second cutback, and then a pass towards the slot. And there really wasn't a, a whole lot of creativity, which is astonishing because of how brilliant those players are. Um, I think that that's one of the things, one of the extra things that, that Ehlers brings to that group. And you know what? Speaking of bright spots, I think Ewers has quietly been one of mm-hmm. Winnipeg's best forwards uh, all through the season. Um, just like Line, adding just a hint of puck winning and and and, uh, and battle winning to his game, which is great because he can already fly through the neutral zone and in his own specific way. I think you can already confidently call him a, a driver of play for other players. Well, that's a great point. I think, you know, something Ehlers has done uh, well throughout his career, even last year when he was struggling in other areas of the game, was his ability to use that speed and puck carrying ability and that unpredictability to keep defenders sort of... um, uh, like off their balance and cause them to to hook and hold and, and draw a ton of penalties. And, you know, since he entered the league in 2015, he's drawn 126 penalties. He has a plus 76 differential, which is amongst the league leaders. And, and so far this year, he's already drawn nine penalties in 11 games. And that has been a bit of a, a saving grace for this Jets team so far when you talk about sort of why things haven't been even worse. Um, because their power play, which used to be money in the bank, uh, still hasn't gone going. Now a lot of that is seems to be shorting shooting percentage uh, related and that'll eventually 
kind of normalized and they'll start scoring more goals there but their penalty kill has been the league worst and so having a guy like Ehlers who at least gives them more volume in that regard until their special teams get sorted out um, has been kind of a low-key really really important factor for them it feels like if it weren't for that like things could really be off the rails right now yeah I'm glad that you mentioned shooting percentage as well because in a small non-wild way but in in a in a small way, percentages haven't been kind to the Jets. Uh, and, and if I've got this correct, and at least it was before the Los Angeles game, they were shooting at 6.5 percent at five five on five, and I think that's roughly two percent below uh, what you'd expect for a five on five average. Um, it, it's been the bounces haven't necessarily always been kind. Some of that you can easily explain away because uh, Kyle Connor and Patrick Laine missed a, a lot of time and Kyle Connor has missed looks from in tight that you don't typically expect him to, to miss as well. You can sort of negotiate your way around that stuff. But I think the fact of the matter is uh, they've just been a, a, a hint unlucky in terms of PDO. That'll come around. Uh, but back to Nick Ehlers as a bright light, one of the things that I think um, might help improve those power play numbers as well. Uh, step one was to move Neil Pionk onto the top unit in Josh Morrissey's place, and uh, his right-handed shooting ability is is a boon there. Uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier for him to take that pass from Blake Wheeler on the right wall and, a lo- and much easier for him to fire it off to Patrick Liney as a shooter. And if there's one thing Pionk did particularly well last season, it was primary assists on the power play. So that was a good step. Um, I think the next step for Winnipeg is to figure out its zone entries. Um, Mark Shifley is good at so many things. I have him inside the NHL's top 10 centers, uh, probably uh, in that range, but he's a career 45% on the draw. So Winnipeg's starting a lot of its power plays with uh, with a need to go back, get it, and bring it back up ice. I think that's an area where Nick Ehlers could perhaps sub out for a Kyle Connor because they have similar qualities of pass distribution and they have similar qualities of one-timer as well, even if Connor's maybe a little bit more skilled in tight spaces. I think that's one thing Connor does exceptionally well. Uh, all to say, uh, more Nick Ehlers, more success, probably. Yeah, well, and, and how the most sort of, if you're Paul Maurice, what the optimal utilization of that top six, even at 515 is, is such a fascinating question to me because I, I don't think there appears to be... Um, a right answer beyond just uh, you know really thinking outside the box and potentially just completely splitting those gaps eyes up and having line A play with a guy like Hop as you mentioned and, and really um, kind of going to the extreme because you know you look at like when line A's played with Shia and Wheeler they're like a sub 42% shot share team and, and they've really only been bailed out in terms of the goals because they're scoring at a sky, super sky high rate now you could argue that you know Shifley is a guy who has throughout his career been pretty much one of the few players in the league that's immune to shooting percentage regression and it seems like he's money in the bank for between 15 and 16 percent himself now with line a um i remember i had you on maybe it was last year or two years ago or whatever and we got into that kind of philosophical discussion about you know what a realistic expectation was for him for the rest of his career because he comes out of the gate with this shot unlike anything we've ever really seen before I guess maybe like a prime Steven Stamkos or you know a prime Ilya Kovalchuk in terms of his ability to generate so much force and accuracy from so far out that he can still beat NHL goalies cleanly and he was scoring at 17-18% of his shots and and I honestly thought to myself that it completely checks out from the eye test. Like the puck coming off of his stick makes a completely different sound than it does for pretty much any other player in the league. And I talk myself into him being just that sort of rare exception that breaks all of our expected goals models and can keep doing this time and time again. And now since then, um, in, in year three and year four now, uh, he's down to shooting 12%, which for most players wouldn't be an issue because that's roughly around league average, slightly above for forwards. And you'd, and you'd think, okay, that's, you know, fine. That's reasonable, but it is a massive, um, a massive step back, even like maybe just like a me- mentally for us to think about because we had penciled him in for being so above average. And I don't know, like, where do you stand on that entire, uh, sort of thought process of what the real, uh, true outcome is for Patrick Laine, what we can expect moving forward, what, what the real uh, shooting percentage range is for him, because it doesn't feel, it, it might not seem like it, but going from that 18 down to 12 without necessarily even increasing the shot volume is a massive problem for both him and the Jets. I'm going to start emotionally mm-hmm. uh, with this one. And 
if there is a sensation that I had when Dustin Bufflin was at the top of that power play, uh, faking a slap shot and moving the puck over to line A, that the puck would go in. I didn't question it oftentimes. You could see uh, the, the way that defense, defenses were frozen just slightly, um, and then Liney was shooting at the percentages that he was, that there were streaks where, I mean, you know, var- variance being what it is, right? He was, he was clocking out at 18% or whatever it is at the end of the season, but there were stretches where he was scoring on half of his shots for a couple of games in a row, right? Um, and there, there was a time where the emotional response to Patrick Laine receiving a pass was, oh, it's going to go in. And it felt right. Um, I don't feel that way anymore about Patrick Laine. And it's, I don't think necessarily all to do with him. I still think that he fires the puck as well as he ever has. Um, but some of those opportunities are, are a lot less effective when he's the only option on that power play at that side. Uh, defenses have adapted a little bit to Shifley in the middle, but they've always done that. Shifley's always found a way. I think the big difference is that lack of a bomb at the top has sort of changed things up. Um, the Devils in particular, but I think one other team, as I was rewatching, didn't just like fade a guy towards line A, but they played him like hip to hip, man to man, as he tried to go up and down the, the the lane on the power play as well. So there's been some changes and some some issues there. To go to what I think that he is overall, I sort of ran through kind of my perspective on it uh, before the season started, just in terms of what I expected from his shot rates, his minutes. Um, maybe a, a progression in his ability to influence what zone the puck is in. Uh, Cause I think that's the thing that he's furthest off of average from in a bad way is his ability to influence what zone the game is played in. And I came up with 44 goals for 82 games as a realistic expectation for this year. Uh, we can get more into methodology and all that sort of stuff, but that's not 50. That's not 60. That's not expected goals model breaking. It was just very good. And is it weird that that's disappointing? Is that weird? Like, I, it, it's so, what a phenomenal character and, and, uh, and career arc that he's already had that that could possibly be seen that way. But that's, that was my response. I was like, oh, okay, 43, 44, fine. Yeah, no, it is crazy, especially when a guy that young comes out of the gate and it's really all we've ever seen from him and you just sort of start uh, even subconsciously thinking like, okay, as he develops, as he gets a bit better, as he gets smarter, what could this potentially be down the road? But, you know, you look at it now and he's on pay, he's got three goals in 11 games and he's not even like shooting um, so, so poorly that you'd go like, oh my God, he's, he's a clear regression candidate. I think he's actually at like 12% or so far this season. It just like the volume hasn't been there. The looks haven't been there. And, and I think that's certainly what you, what you highlighted there plays a big part of it where teams not necessarily haven't caught on to it, but it's a lot easier to key in on a guy like him on the power play, as opposed to Ovechkin who still has his John Carlson at the top of the point. He still has all those other threats around the ice. Whereas with this Jets team, all of a sudden it is a lot easier to just kind of view it as a bit of a one-trick pony and go, okay, well, we're just going to not let them do that and make them beat us elsewhere because the other threats are much more sort of manageable or palatable if you're an opposing penalty kill. Yeah, and to the Jets' credit, their power play has has formed a, a new look as well. They, they've set up on the, the left side uh, a couple of times. They've rotated Lining and Shifley to, to other spots as well. Um, and Kyle Connor, actually, when they set up on the left side, ends up as a shooting option in the middle. And I think, to a certain degree, their ability to to just demand respect, right? If there's another option that defenses realistically have to cover, it'll create a little bit more of an opening, uh, just a, whether it's a fraction of a second or whether it's a little bit more space or whatever it is. Uh, but in that default format on the power play, um, Neil Pionk, I mentioned his primary assist on the power play, absolutely something that he excelled with or at least had massive numbers in New York. Uh, he's a great distributor of the puck in that context, but his shot isn't, nearly what uh, what uh, Bufflin's was, what Truba's was, even what Tyler Myers's would have been at that time. So uh, in terms of respect, uh, Patrick Lanning might not get that space in a hurry. I still think that there's more goals to be scored, scored for him for sure. But just if you're trying to, to, to make a realistic lay of the land and, and think of ways for him to get even more open on the power play, I'm not sure I found it uh, when I've been thinking about it. Yeah, no, it is tough. I, I do, I do, I don't want to beat the guy up. Like, listen, he, um, 
you know, he, three goals and nine assists or something, right? He's one of Winnipeg's top scorers throughout in yes. terms of raw counting stats through and, the beginning of the season. It's been a strong start by a lot of metrics for and, sure. And he has, and he has just to the eye test. I, I think he's been much more noticeable, much more active. Uh, he's done a lot of the stuff that people have been kind of clamoring from him for the past two years, even when he was scoring goals. And so I do think the arrow is trending up, but it, it is, it just, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to reconcile what that sort of upside was and what we thought he could potentially be capable of and then kind of trying to on the fly adjust our expectations and it's unfair to him obviously but it is kind of this like mental gymnastics that we have to go through you know a guy we haven't really mentioned yet is Kyle Connor much and and I think that's very fitting because I always think of him as as a bit of a sort of chameleon where it, it feels like his game is so suited to sliding in in and around pretty much any combination and he'll make it work and he's been excellent with Ehlers so far it's been interesting that over the past couple of years I believe he'd had 500 and 600 uh five on five minutes respectively with Shifley and Wheeler at five on five and and he hasn't really played with them at all this year so I do wonder if they eventually revisit that but um I don't have too much to say about Kyle Connor except for the fact that when I was going back and rewatching some of these games his hair is um yeah, I can't. I can't decide if it's if it's majestic or if it's just completely outrageous. Like I always think of a uh, Lord Farquaad from from Shrek when I watch it. Like it just has this like it just has this like poof at the bottom of it, and it feels like it just doesn't move. Like I don't. Under, it, it's defying gravity in a way. I don't even understand how he's pulling it off. So it's not. Uh, it's not the most analytical take by any means, but it's it's something that I keep coming back to whenever I think about his game. You know, despite that, it was actually one of the first things I asked him when I saw him when he finally uh, signed and got back from Michigan uh, was was about that because Matthew Perot had just uh, cut his hair and he was about to shave it pretty much as well. Uh, so the overall amount of flow on that team has gone down. Sammy Niku's injury trouble and AHL demotion uh, limits it as well. I'm trying to think, I guess Blake Wheeler grew it out a little bit, but if you're looking for majesty in terms of flow anymore, especially with Perot gone, or Perot's hair gone, pardon me, he's still a human being without his haircut. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I think Kyle Connor's probably your leader in that regard right now. Um, didn't help him in terms of his early season finishing, but he was never going to shoot 0% at 5-on-5 forever. His hands are too good for that. Uh, and then it was against Los Angeles, I think, that he got a pass from Brian Little uh, and buried one at 5-on-5 for the first time. So I think it was his fourth goal of the season, the first one in, in that capacity. And he's an interesting guy to me because last season, even when the, when he was moved away from Sifley and Wheeler, there was always this like with certainty he was going to go back there in time for playoffs. And that was something that I interpreted. It's something that Paul Maurice just about said without saying sort of thing. So that, that was my read, but it happened and you could have been sure about it at the time, especially uh, a lot of the Jets fans I interact with were sure about it as well. Um, it's interesting to me that this would be the season that he goes away from that uh, prime time spot because he just sort of cashed in in the off season and in terms of, what he is and what his peak offense is, we probably have seen something close to it, in, close to it in his case because of his line mates at five on five and because of the power play time as well. Um, you might not make that same argument for Patrick Line, and you might not make that same argument for Nick Ehlers, who's uh, I guess just a little bit older by a few months than than Connor is. Well, um, that's an interesting one for me because they're all so good at such different things. Yeah, I would say that Connor feels like he checks the most boxes in terms of the ideal partner for those two guys just because he has a bit of that um Ehlers ability to be a bit more tenacious and a bit more sort of uh uh capable of retrieving the puck we actually saw it in one of the more recent games they're all mixing together for me now but uh, he was playing with Ehlers and, and he did a really nice job of the four on the four check of uh it was against the Kings it was he, he led to a, a goal for him where he was really disrupting Drew Doughty on the four check and so he does a little bit of that but he also has a bit more uh finishing ability so it feels like he's kind of like a nice marriage of some of the skills that Ehlers brings to the table and some of the skills that and he brings to the table and um i imagine we will see him back there eventually because they had too much success over the past two years not to to do that but yeah there's a lot of moving parts there for maurice and you know we're 45 minutes in here and we haven't really like we've been dancing around the subject and we haven't really brought up uh dustin bufflin tangibly yet we've kind of talked about um what his absence in the lineup does for both the blue line in terms of the minutes and also for a guy like line a in terms of the power play effectiveness but where are you at with that entire situation in terms of are people still um, expecting that he's going to kind of come save the day and walk in the door all of a sudden or is enough time passing now where 
we shouldn't plan for that. Like it just the entire way that, uh, the Jets organization has acted since that news came out in terms of not really making any major moves in terms of pretty much leaving the exact number of cap space open for sliding Dustin Bufflin's contract and cap figure back in to stay cap compliant. Like some of that stuff always led me to believe that we were going to get a happy ending to this and there was going to be some sort of a resolution where they would get him back in the lineup. But I mean, now you see like it just they haven't the fact that they haven't done anything beyond really uh stealing Lucas Pisa away from the Ducks which is pretty hilarious in and of itself um that all, all points to me that they are expecting him back but i don't know like where where, where what's the temperature like right now and what are you thinking about the situation yeah at the, at the athletic we uh, Ken Weeb and i wrote a 10 bold predictions piece at the beginning of the season trying to you know just push beyond the the typical, okay, I think this guy's shooting percentage is going to regress, but actually try to be halfway bold. And um, I'm not really known for spitting fire at the best of times, I think. I, I think I try to keep it kind of reasonable. My my take on that was that we would see Dustin Bufflin again this season, and just not soon. And I still honestly believe that. Um, uh, whether it's sort of the, the smoke around Darren Dreger's announcement about a week ago that the uh, talks have shifted or not talks, but the attitude has shifted slightly positively um, or the just maybe my perception, I guess around things that I, that I've heard or thought in the last little while, I continue to believe that just a little bit more than half, I'm leaning towards him coming back. The problem with that is that even if he does return He's not an immediate savior. Uh, he, he needs to get back up to game shape. He needs to get back to pace, uh, pick up the new system, all that sort of stuff. Um, he's not, I don't think anybody's capable of walking in on December 1st and, and fixing what ails a team that has lost as many guys on the back end as Winnipeg has. Um, at the same time, I think maybe the interpretation around Winnipeg's roster moves is, is part of what influences my thought. Um, I, I would have known in the summertime that uh, with Patrick Liney and Kyle Connor's contract as of yet unsigned, even though there was some cap space there and uh, a good free agent like Jake Gardner was on the market, I would have known or that the Jets were not necessarily in on that because they were protecting cap space. And that's where you see the Mark Letescu ad and that's Anthony Boteto ad and, and, and moves like that which are about bodies in a way. And, and Winnipeg certainly likes having those bodies be people that it believes to be good humans or good in the room. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's about having somebody capable of playing a role who's not an albatross of a contract, who's not, um, not particularly expensive, that if the situation resolves itself in a different direction, you can move on from that player. And that's with no disrespect to people with great careers like, like a Mark Letestu has had. Um, but I think that's the role that he plays. And then with uh, Winnipeg's most recent pickup of Spisa, well, I think that follows the same sort of phenomenon. Like the the Jets still have the buffing issue hanging over them. They still have the Bolu injury, the Niku injury, all these sorts of things sort of piling up. Bufflin obviously being the most significant of those three. Uh, and all the tiny little moves you see in the Dahlstrom pickup as well off of waivers. It's just them doing the best they can while treading water and knowing that they're not going to make a move that requires commitment right now. They're not going to trade for a $4 million defenseman right now to patch it up until they've got resolution. And, you know, maybe you read some optimism into that, or maybe you just think that it's them doing Buffalo on a solid and, and being following through on the idea that they were going to give him as much time. There's a lot of stuff there. And I don't think any of it says that, uh, that he's absolutely coming back. I don't think any of it says that Spitzer, or Dahlstrom or Boteto are the answer either. Um, but just to, to take it back to your initial question, I still believe that we will see Dustin Buffum play hockey this season. Well, I hope you're right. As a, as someone who has, uh, you know, no rooting interest or, or no, or no bias beyond just watching the best players in the world play hockey and do their thing. Like he's such a unique, um, athlete in terms of what he's capable of when he's on the ice, when he's healthy and when he's, um, you know, playing at his absolute best. And, and I'd love to see that. Now, it is a bit troublesome that 
the Jets have, you know, part of it is um, it was just going to happen anyways. Part of it is is by their choice in terms of how they've approached the situation, like in terms of just expecting him to come back in and solve all their problems and be the immediate answer. Like it's clear that he'll help. Um, you know, they could use any of that at this point. But even last year, we saw that you know he was laboring quite a bit physically. That uh, expecting him at this point of his career with his age and all the miles he's accumulated to just step back in and play 25, 26 minutes a night and, and do everything for them and be able to still stay healthy and play out the rest of the season. Like that seems ambitious in and of itself. So I guess like all of their moves point to a team that is just kind of trying to um, buy time and, um, you know, hold on for now and not completely fall out of it until something comes down the road. But I'm just not sure what that thing in their mind is that's going to come in and immediately fix a lot of these things that ail them. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. That's how I'm taking it right now. And even if, let's say, uh, that, you know, that they believe that he's not coming back, I think that there's something, um, to a point to be said for showing uh, some goodwill and allowing a person to take all of the time to make what decision is best for them as an individual. Uh, I think that's the right way to treat individual people in, in this situation. Uh, but at the same time, it comes with a cost and every game that there is no resolution, whether it's a Bufflin or a usage of his cap space or whatever it's going to be. I mean, they're treading water at a, at a position where they're already weak. So it's this interesting push and pull or, or tug of war between those two ideas in my mind. Uh, and I'm certain that, you know, that the fan base will have its own opinions or fall at different sides of that continuum as well. Um, but I think that Winnipeg is doing itself a service as an organization by being uh, as overtly, I don't know if loyal is the right word, but sort of treating it in, in the appropriate way. And, and all of their press verbal and all of that sort of stuff has been supportive as well. Um, is the best I think that you can do in, in what's clearly a, a difficult situation for them. That's well said. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's it. Was there anything else on this team that we neglected to cover or that we're overlooking? Like, I feel like we really kind of hit it on all fronts. Hey, we've got a Heritage Classic coming up in Regina. That's exciting. Um, outdoor hockey is always a good time. But uh, in terms of how they've done and sort of the nitty-gritty of their performance, I think it's it's so interesting that they can be doing something so much better. And to me, that's their gap at the, at the blue line in the neutral zone and still be so much worse because they're just unable to, to make those same shutdown plays in their own zone. And um, it's... It's fun. I, I honestly think that there's something really compelling about this group as it fights for uh, for this bubble or for the 500 mark or whatever it's going to be when it's all said and done. Um, <laughs> I guess fans will be disappointed by that, but I'm compelled by I'm compelled by uncertainty at the best of times. I think that's what this is. Yeah, I guess it's sad when you factor in where they were at two years ago or even a year ago at this time and sort of what they're you know, reasonable out uh, ceiling or uh, capability was. And then you, when you compare it to now, but you're right in terms of from an analyst, like wearing an analyst hat, they are an interesting team just because they're a great test case for this kind of interplay that we always wonder about of like talent versus coaching and structure and system and sort of how those two things uh, play off of each other. And also, you know, clearly you'd love to have as much talent as possible and have, you know, an all-star team that can just score a million goals and win every game handily, but in a cap system that is not typically uh, something teams can do. And so you have to make it work and you have to try to optimize your talent. And, um, you know, this is a this is a great sort of uh, guinea pig for that, especially, you know, with Paul Maurice. It, it's crazy to think that he's already the uh, the second longest tenured coach just uh, a couple months behind John Cooper. But he's been around for so long now and there's been so many different iterations of this team. And this is just the latest one. And it's it's such a such a drastic change in terms of philosophy and talent from where they were at pretty recently. So uh, following all of that and. um and seeing how it turns out is going to be fun. And I can't think of a better man to do that job than you. So I appreciate you taking the time. And this is the part of the show where I let you, you let you plug some stuff. You were talking about the heritage classic. What are you, what are you working on? What do you have coming out? What can people look forward to from you? Uh, one of the fun things that I, I was able to do in the last couple of weeks was sort of get a behind the scenes process of, uh, of Winnipeg's Jersey creation uh, development. So obviously they've got this heritage classic blue Jersey that's, uh, that harkens back to old times. Uh, uh, sort of had some conversations about the thoughts behind that. And also all of the things that it could have been or back in 2016, what the white one could have been and other heritage type ideas 
that the Jets explored. I thought that was kind of a fun one that's uh, not something I normally sink my teeth into. One of the most interesting things I would say that I, I would have written recently was after rewatching a pile of games, just uh, a demonstration of how well certain defensemen are or aren't protecting the blue line and, and what the puck possession outcomes are of, of Winnipeg's new uh, defensive scheme in the neutral zone. Uh, so we sort of got the the fun stuff, the the goofy stuff, and and the analysis as well. And then I I can't wait for the for the outdoor game in Regina and all the things that come out of that too. So it's yeah, it's definitely fun to to write about this team right now for sure. Beautiful man. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to following your work. I'm looking forward to uh to the next brisket sandwich we share together. This was a this was a blast. Uh, uh, enjoy the ride, and uh, we will uh we'll, we'll check back in sometime down the road to kind of see where this uh, where the season went for the Jets. Thanks a lot, Dimitri. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim. Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey